Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. There's been a lot of ongoing news with the United States Postal Service, and right now they're dealing with a backlog of letters and packages and are facing a crisis that could delay the results of the election in November. A number of cost-cutting policies have been put in place by the new Postmaster General, there are fewer mail trucks on the road, and postal workers are not able to work overtime. The Postal Service is seeking billions in aid from Congress to help stay afloat. But with mail-in voting expected to increase this year, there is concern that they might not be able to handle the influx of ballots. For more on all the problems that the Postal Service are facing, we'll speak to Adam Clark Estes, Deputy Editor with Recode at Vox. Well, the Postal Service is pretty famous for having financial problems, and that's been true for a decade for a few different reasons. But when the pandemic hit, suddenly a lot of postal worker employees got sick and they had additional expenses for outfitting post offices. And of course, people started sending a lot less mail, which meant they had a lot less revenue. But we didn't see a real interruption in service until a few weeks ago with the new Postmaster General, who's a Trump donor, implemented a number of new policies that basically said there could be no overtime. It had fewer trucks running mail. And pretty quickly, you went from getting your mail on time like you're used to, to waiting days or sometimes weeks for packages and letters to arrive. The new Postmaster General, his name is Louis DeJoy, and as you mentioned, he's a Trump donor, longtime Republican fundraiser. He started kind of some restructuring of the Postal Service in a memo that he released. Tell us about some of these restructuring. Like, what is it doing that's complicating things for the Postal Service? Like a lot of things DeJoy has done since he took office, postal workers don't really seem to understand what's going on. He's not been a very good communicator. The policies that have been slowing down mail so far weren't even communicated to the unions or to a lot of postal workers. They just noticed it started happening. Then on late Friday, a memo was sent that said that there would be some restructuring. Leaders of the Postal Service are being reassigned. And again, it's not really clear exactly what's going to happen or how this is going to affect service more. But what was clear to me from talking to a lot of postal leaders and talking to the unions was that these policies are not going over well. They're causing mail to get delayed. And at the end of the day, the U.S. P.S. just wants to deliver mail and and deliver on time. And they think that's the most important thing that they could be doing now during the pandemic and especially looking ahead to November when we expect record numbers of mail and voting. So what it looks like right now is that there's no overtime. There's a lack of staffing. Just like everybody right now, everybody needs more money. So they need some type of, you know, bailout if you want to call it. However, they, they need more cash infusion. But you noted in the article, too, that The United States Postal Service, even though they've been struggling financially, they haven't taken taxpayer dollars for at least 40 years. So they're not like one of these agencies that is always trying to get money. But this is what's happening right now. When uh, the CARES Act went through, they asked Congress for money. So this is where they're at right now, where they just need some money to help them continue the operations. That's true. And I think that the Postal Service looks at like the airline industry or the hotel industry who got tens of billions of dollars and they didn't get anything. And specifically, they asked for help. And we're told, no, Trump said that he would veto any package back in the spring that included money for the Postal Service. So they didn't get anything. They have agreed on a $10 billion loan that has conditions that a lot of the postal leaders don't like. 
And with the round of funding that was being discussed last week that didn't make it through, they asked for money in that, too. In fact, congressional leaders called the Postmaster General to Capitol Hill to say that he needed to reverse these new policies that were slowing down the mail in order to come to an agreement on a new relief package. And of course, we know now that he could not come to an agreement and there would be no new relief round from Congress. Tell me a little bit more about the Postmaster General DeJoy. He's a former logistics executive. He doesn't have any postal service experience. And this is kind of throwing off of a lot of longtime postal workers. Obviously, we were kind of talking about some of the restructuring and new things that he wanted to do, cost-saving measures and whatnot. But tell us a little bit about him and how he's figuring in his new role here. DeJoy is really approaching the Postal Service as a business. And as one union leader told me, it's called the United States Postal Service, not the United States Postal Business. And I think that they're a little bit skeptical of the way that he wants to cut costs and you know, potentially disservice in doing so. As for his resume, he very much looks like a, a lot of other Trump appointees. He gave a lot of money to the campaign in 2016 and again in 2020. He was a top Republican fundraiser as well and comes from the private sector. And he has a lot of money invested in postal service competitors like UPS. So I think that there's a lot of suspicion about his not coming from the Postal Service are having worked directly for them before. He's the first Postmaster General in over two decades that has not risen up to the ranks of the Postal Service to take that top job. So there's some skepticism for sure. I think that everybody wants to give the guy a chance, but so far he's been in office for a little less than two months, and it sounds like what he's done is not very popular with the workers, and I think it's very popular with the American public who's waiting to get their mail. So right now, the U.S. Postal Service has a big backlog of letters and packages and all that. But let's talk about the election, because a lot more people are going to do mail-in voting because of the coronavirus health concerns. They don't want to go out to polling places. There's a lot going into that. We know the president has been campaigning against vote by mail, if you want to call it that, just saying there's going to be a lot of fraud and all that. So tell us how these delays, the financial struggles that the Postal Service is having right now, how could that affect the election? There's a lot of confusion around mail-in voting and how it works. And a lot of that is coming from the president, who has simultaneously told people that absentee voting is been great and secure, and that mail-in voting is ridden with fraud. Well, there's actually no difference between those two things. It's, they're synonyms for the same service. And the United States Postal Service has been handling ballots for generations. So they say that they're well prepared to deal with the volume. I can't remember the exact numbers that they gave me, but they're expecting about twice as many mail-in votes this election as they did in the last one. But that comes nowhere near the amount of mail that gets sent to the U.S. Postal Service around Christmas. What can become a problem, though, are delays. And that's a problem because of the way that different states have legislated for the mail-in voting process. In some states, the election board has to have the ballots on election day or before. In other states, they have to be postmarked on election day or before. And even small mistakes can have really big consequences. We saw that in New York City, where there was an issue with the way that ballots were postmarked, and that led to tens of thousands being thrown out. And if you look at swing states like Michigan or Wisconsin, the difference in tens of thousands of votes or even just a few thousand votes could be the difference in the election. The Postal Service workers that I talked to and the U.S. Postal Service itself said that they were confident that they would be able to handle the ballots in a timely fashion, and that ballots are treated differently than regular pieces of mail, that they're given priority. But again, I think that even with these recent delays and news of a shakeup, 
a lot of people sort of suspect that there's some attempt to sabotage the election by sabotaging the mail-in voting process. And at a certain point, if people don't trust the U.S. Postal Service to handle their ballot correctly, they might not vote. Last election, 31 million people voted by mail. The American Postal Workers Union said there's virtually no fraud when it comes to that. But there is a worry, as you were talking about, about those delays where some critical states might not be called the day of the election because it's going to take time to count all those mail-in ballots. So that's a big concern. But still, overall, it was interesting that you noted in the article that the Postal Service as an independent agency is like one of the most popular agencies. People love it. It has a high approval ratings and people just trust it from dealing with it first forever, right? They just really trust the Postal Service. And it's not just they love it. They really love it. In different surveys, all the numbers I saw were over 90%, and that's over 90% for Republicans and Democrats. It's equally popular between members of both parties. People also depend on it. There are millions and millions of prescriptions that are being sent through the U.S. Postal Service, especially now during the pandemic. And a delay in someone's prescription can be, in some cases, a life-threatening issue. So I don't think that anybody wants the, the U.S. Postal Service to go away. But for the first time in a, in a long time, that seems like it could be a possibility. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens leading up to the election. I feel like we're going to be talking about the Postal Service and mail-in balloting, mail-in voting, all the way through to the election. Congress wants to talk to the Postmaster General to see what he's changing, why he's changing it. So this is going to be an ongoing conversation. Adam Clark Estes, Deputy Editor with Recode at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Finally for this week, contact tracing was supposed to be one of the biggest tools in the fight to contain the spread of coronavirus. But many health departments across the country are losing the race to warn the contacts of COVID victims. City and county health departments say they don't have enough money or staff to keep up with the surge of cases. On Alabama's Gulf Coast, the contact tracers are stretched so thin that they're telling people who get the virus to notify of contacts themselves. The country only has about a quarter of the contact tracers that is recommended to be able to do the job effectively, not to mention the difficulty in getting some people to comply. For more on how it's tough for contact tracers to keep up, we'll speak to Jamie Dowdell, investigative reporter at Reuters. Contact tracing is one of the foundations of public health and disease management. It's nothing new. It's been around for a long time. And as you mentioned, it's important to combating COVID was stressed early on in the pandemic. Government said we need to get lots of people on the ground doing this. And despite the federal government saying it, despite state government saying that, we're finding that largely the local health departments, the ones that are the people on the ground that are actually having to conduct this work, have had massive issues. And so we wanted to take a look at that. We did that in a few different ways. We follow a specific contact tracer, speaking with them every day for weeks at a time. We talked to officials, administrators of local health departments, and we put out a survey of local health departments across the country. And that survey was incredibly telling because the departments that responded, we had more than 120 local health departments from across the country to respond. And some very common concerns included issues with staffing. A lot of them, they're not able to hire new people. They don't have the bodies to do it. And so they're getting redeployed staff from other areas of their departments. They're getting basically volunteers from other parts of the government to come and learn how to do that. Some are not getting any money at all. The state of Missouri was really interesting because 
despite asking the state for money from the first round of COVID funding, the state said, we just can't do this. And as of now, most of the local health departments in that state haven't received any funding at all to help them with this. And as you said, the cases are soaring. So what we're seeing is a lot of frustration. They want to do this work. They see the importance of this work. And a lot of contact tracers and administrators told us that this is a worthwhile endeavor. But then at the same time, they're just being outstripped of their power to keep up with this. And it's gotten so bad that there's a county in Alabama, Mobile County, Alabama. They're stretched so thin that the local health department there is telling those who test positive to notify contacts themselves. Take us through a typical day for a contact tracer. And I think one of the ones that you profiled was a former librarian too. Kind of going off of what you said, that a lot of them are just being redeployed from other city agencies or something else just to help out with these efforts. But they're doing long days. They're hoping they can reach, I think the number was 75% of people who have contracted the virus so that they can do the proper techniques that they need on the contact tracing. But some agencies are hitting way below that, 40% or even less. What's interesting is kind of some of these personal stories behind the contact tracers. We followed a woman in San Francisco who was a librarian, and she basically was trained to become a contact tracer. And she became so key to that that she ended up becoming a supervisor. And so her day, she has to dole out who everyone calls. And it was really interesting because it used to be in the beginning, like she'll have to do part of her work will be the library. And then part of her work is contact tracing. But now it's all contact tracing. There's a woman in Michigan. Her name is Karen Cordobine. Really fascinating story there is she's a veteran nurse for the Berrien County Health Department there. And that contact tracing is something that she normally does as part of her job, but it's not a full-time thing. But then in COVID, they started hearing reports that a gospel singer, Sandy Patty, had had a concert in their county and Sandy Patty had tested positive. And so I believe it was a Saturday or Sunday, all the nurses for the county came into work and started tracking things down and figuring out getting people who'd attended the concert. And through the contact tracing, they found their county's first positive cases. And so what she did is is after that, she and the other tracers there, they staff that county every single day. The county is open, even though typically it would be closed on Saturday and Sunday, but someone's covering it. And I spoke with her every day for about two and a half weeks. And one thing I, I think that we think about contact tracing as something that's important to protect the public, but this is also tough work for them because they happen to be talking to these people and they may talk to a person that ends up dying a week later. And, you know, Karen, she told me that one day I talked to her and she said, I had COVID dreams all last night. I just couldn't sleep. And so, you know, there are other struggles that they're going through as well, even when it works really well. And in the case of San Francisco, they're having great success. And in the case of Berrien County, they're having success, too. So there are some areas that are finding success. But largely what we were finding is, you know, a big struggle to hit those targets that you mentioned. And so we found 40 of the departments who responded. We called them like large based on the size of their cases. So we had 40 departments that had 1,000 cases or more. And of those, about half 
were able to reach nearly all of the people. And as I mentioned, 75% is the goal. And so they're just not hitting their targets and that, you know, there's frustration all around. Yeah. And time is of the essence with all of this. You have to find the case as early as possible to get them to quarantine, to get other people they've come in contact. If too much time goes by, it becomes useless at that point. And that was some of the other stuff that you were finding too. I, I, we talk a lot about testing delays. And testing delays also hamper the contact tracing effort. If a test comes a week later, I mean, that's a week of exposure that a lot of people could have had in the meantime. And I just wanted to add on real quick about some of the difficulties that a contact tracer, a person actually doing the work, has. When it works well, that's great. But sometimes people don't want to share their personal information. They don't want to share who they've been around. They'll yell at a contact tracer, you know, get out of here type of thing. So there's difficulties all around on that. I did want to talk about funding for contact tracing because we know that Congress is debating a lot of this right now, how much money to allocate for this stuff. As with everything, it's a big fight. Republicans want to offer a little less money. Democrats want a ton more money, but these states are so strapped for money and staffing, they need it to bolster these efforts. Right. And so what we talked to officials at the Department of Health and Human Services, and basically what they're saying, what they told us is that the federal government has given all of this funding. And what we've been told is that the states have the money, but they're just not spending it. It's just not being drawn down. And so we've actually seen that specifically in Missouri. What we saw is the CARES Act funding, which you know, one of the issues is that none of the money that's been given out is designated specifically for contact tracing, right? It could be used for testing. It could be used for contact tracing. It could be used for other things, but there's nothing designated just for that. And so in Missouri, the CARES Act money, it goes to the state and the state distributed it to the counties and the county commissions. And so local health departments in Missouri have to then go to their county commissioners and apply for the money. In some situations, they were just denied. The county wouldn't give them money. Um, in other situations, it has been approved, but they have to do it on a reimbursement basis. And so, you know, they spend the money and then they submit receipts and then they might refund it and they might not. And so there's a lot of fear that these health departments just are going to run out of money, essentially. Wow. Um, and we were told that some are really, really worried about that. And so the funding varies from state to state on what is happening, but there are some real issues. And the bottom line is it is a major concern for the local health department. So even if it's being said that the money is getting out there, they're reporting to us that they're not seeing it. And that's why we've done a lot of stories on the podcast too about states calling for some type of national guidance or infrastructure to get a lot of this stuff done. They're largely left to themselves and it's so decentralized certain points it makes sense because things need to be local and handled locally. Mm -hmm. But I know states have been clamoring for some type of big national effort to coordinate all of this stuff, allocate money and resources and really help out. So it's a difficult job as we've been talking about, and states are having a hard time getting the contact tracing efforts to be effective just because the cases are going so high right now. But we'll have to keep monitoring and, and seeing what's going on there. But it's a great look into all these health departments. So I suggest everybody go out and read the piece by Jamie. Jamie Dowdell, investigative reporter at Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much, Oscar. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment. 
give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.